they only went to Bitcoin miners. But I would turn around and say, but what is causing Bitcoin miners to mine? Well, it's the price of Bitcoin. What's causing the price of Bitcoin? Well, it's people holding Bitcoin. What's causing people to hold Bitcoin? Well, they don't trust the government. What's causing that lack of trust? Might have to do with the massive amount of currency debasement that has occurred over the past 50 years. You know, it's like, oh, okay, so really the people at the root cause of these carbon emissions, it's Keynesians. Right. It's the it's the people who want to print money and uh, who have violated the institutional trust and the credibility that uh, historically helped government. Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker and this is the Bitcoin podcast. The Bitcoin time chain is eight, three, two, eight, three, nine and the value of one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. Today's episode is Bitcoin Talk, where I talk with my guest about Bitcoin and whatever else comes up. Today, that guest is Pierre Rochard, VP of Research at Riot Platforms. Pierre is an incredible resource on Bitcoin mining, and he's also a hilarious dude. We dug deep into Bitcoin mining, energy, demand response in the grid, and covered the recent victory for Bitcoin miners in the U.S. against illegal government overreach. Near the end, Pierre also gives a powerful message to policymakers that I highly recommend everyone share with their elected officials. I guarantee you will learn a lot from our conversation, and you will laugh a lot too. A quick request before we dive in. If you like the Bitcoin podcast, Please share an episode you find valuable on Noster, Twitter, or even Facebook if you're still one of the few people using that. I'm a one-man show trying to build out another fucking Bitcoin podcast, so the best way you can support this show is to share it with your friends, family, and strangers on the internet. You can also support this show by going to bitbox.swiss walker and using the promo code walker to get yourself 5% off the fully open source Bitcoin-only Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. As always, you can watch the video version of this episode on Rumble, YouTube, or X. Just search at Walker America, or listen on Fountain.fm or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Bitcoin Podcast. If you listen to The Bitcoin Podcast on Fountain, which I recommend, consider giving this show a boost or creating a clip of something you found interesting. And if you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, Hit me up on social media or through the website, bitcoinpodcast.net. Without further ado, let's get into this Bitcoin talk with Pierre Rochard. Man, welcome. Thank you uh, so much for sharing your scarce time with me and coming on here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. It, you know, I was, I was thinking, uh, I, I've just started this fairly recently and I was thinking about folks to have on. And I've got to say that your, uh, your tweets, uh, and also videos that you have, uh, starred in, uh, have been some of my absolute favorites. And I w was just thinking, you know, I, I need to have somebody on, uh, to really dive deep into the Bitcoin mining side and who better than you. And I've got to say also uh, still to this day, I will sometimes go back and, and watch that, uh, the video that you and riot put out. Uh, after the New York Times uh, propaganda piece where you had your uh, your little atmospheric tester and you were going around, you know, and and uh, just 
it cracks me up every single time. It was such a, I can't even call it satire though, because there it is. There's the famous, the, the famous piece, but I, I can't even call it satire because it was, it was genuinely being honest. But I think that people, uh, who perhaps don't understand the realities of the world thought like, well, this, this is satire or like I saw so many articles I was even looking today and I saw that it got fact checked by like the big fact checkers, the like AFP and all of those like saying like, well, this actually Bitcoin mining does have emissions. And I'll, I'll link this video in the show notes for anyone who has not seen it. I think probably most folks have, but I just wanted to say that was, that was some brilliant work that you guys did with that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, the, the compliment means a lot coming from you. Uh, and uh, the other thing I'd add is uh, I really like that you identify that this video did not fall into the two categories that 99% of people thought that it fell into. Uh, you're right. It falls into a third, far more absurd category of uh, truthful parody humor. Yeah, I... I you could almost call it like truthful absurdism, maybe like, let's yeah. just take this to the logical extreme and let's use the, you know, use the tools of the regime against it. But it was just brilliant. And I, I was reading through this fact check article today and it, there was one part where they said, uh, oh, if uh, if computers are powered or if the computers are powered by wind or solar, then the facility would be considered to be carbon free. However, if a power plant burning fossil fuel is generating the energy, then we can't consider Bitcoin mining free from any carbon emissions. And it's like you read that and you're like, OK, but then pause. So we're saying that every single EV has a huge carbon footprint, right? Like, like we're just admitting that then, but in not directly, it just, it blows my mind. The, the lack of kind of awareness of the realities of the electricity grid and that people yeah. think it just comes out like, Oh, if it's electricity, it's clean. I don't, I don't well, get it. <laughs> in a way there, I, I think that actually is the correct perspective that if it's electricity is clean. I, I, I agree. Uh, but unless now, you're a Bitcoin miner, then it's dirty, you know? Well, right. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because that is actually the position you put forward that, hey, it would be okay if they were using renewables. Uh, that's actually the moderate position. The extremist position is that, and this is the position of the Biden administration, by the way, because we know it's their position because this is what they wrote in their tax proposal, where they said that, there should be a tax on electricity consumption from Bitcoin miners, even if it, you are on your own property with your solar panels and your windmills and you're producing your own electricity in a completely renewable manner and you are feeding it into your Bitcoin miners. You need to figure out what the transfer pricing is on the electricity because a tax, they, they wanted to tax that and they said that it's still a problem because that renewable electricity could be you know saving lives right it could be uh it could be put towards better uses like hospitals for disabled children you know it's like oh okay i i, I didn't understand that was the limiting factor for hospitals was uh this electricity which by the way in texas we overproduce electricity we have a super abundance of electricity it's not uncommon for electricity prices to be negative or zero so um I, you know, so the, the the moderate position is that it's okay if it's with renewables. Um, I my position on it personally, uh, you know, kind of just going beyond the video is that um, 
or really going into the video <laughs> because this is the central point is that um, any kind of policies around any kind of pollutants or alleged pollutants like carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases has to follow basically the science of chemistry, right? Of where are the actual pollutants coming out of? What's the source? Um, and that's all we need to take an inventory of and do an accounting of. Um, once we start thinking about the abstract of what is causing this, uh, you can you can go up the causal chain to any level. So, you know, they only went to Bitcoin miners. But I would turn around and say, but what is causing Bitcoin miners to mine? Well, it's the price of Bitcoin. What's causing the price of Bitcoin? Well, it's people holding Bitcoin. What's causing people to hold Bitcoin? Well, they don't trust the government. What's causing that lack of trust? Might have to do with the massive amount of currency debasement that has occurred over the past 50 years. You know, it's like, oh, okay, so really the people at the root cause of these carbon emissions, it's Keynesians. Right. It's the it's the people who want to print money and uh, who have violated the institutional trust and the credibility that uh, historically, you know, uh, helped governments. Now, um, so but of, of course, we could keep going of, well, what caused them to start printing money? Well, I'd actually argue that it was a, a technological discovery of the printing press, <laughs> you know, literally, <laughs> uh, you know, the, once you had the technology to and, and really it's about the, the counterfeiting and also the verification, right? That once you had a bill counting machine um, and so to do that, you needed uh, plastics and semiconductors. So, you know, there was kind of a, a, a technological tool chain that emerged that lowered the cost of kind of creating um, a hard to forge currency. And I think that's what ultimately gives the government such a good monopoly and thus good monopoly seniorage rents, right? The profit margins on um, printing money, you know, the profit margins are terrible on printing money if everybody can do it pretty cheaply, right? If you can go buy an HP printer and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you can get close enough to a $100 bill using an HD printer and, you know, you can buy the paper and all this. Uh, you know, that would be a problem. But uh, as as everyone who has watched, um, well, so there's Catch Me If You Can, uh, the famous movie about forgeries. Um, but there's lots of documentaries about, uh, you know, how they make a $100 bill uh, hard to forge. So all that to say that, you know, that arguably was the, the, the cause of uh, kind of the inflationary century that we saw. Um, and then, of course, uh, in the electronic world, you have cryptography now. Um, and something that were, um, you know, the, the TradFi system was using cryptography before Bitcoin existed, right? When you entered your credit card information online in 2007, you did so using SSL, you know, HTTPS, these encryption protocols. So I would argue that the U.S. dollar was a cryptocurrency uh, before uh, Bitcoin uh, existed. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, but all that to say that that's, you know, the security technology around a currency matters a lot. And then once you have a certain security technology, it's like, OK, what's going to be your monetary policy? 
Um, and that's where I think the, the Bitcoin central innovation is. It's not in the use of cryptography, right? Because that was happening with fiat anyway. It, it wasn't in the fact that you had an app for that, right? You already had mobile banking. Um, it was that you can actually uh, know that if you hold one Bitcoin, you've got a fixed percentage of the total diluted supply of Bitcoin. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling, but um, that, that I think is the cause of Bitcoin mining. Um, and it is, I think it is particularly offensive to fiat maximalists uh, that um, essentially what we have here is that these people are consuming massive amounts of electricity in order to destroy seniorage profits, right? They, to them, it's like you are, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, that's their lifeblood that you're sacrificing. Uh, and um, so I think that's why they find uh, Bitcoin mining to be particularly offensive uh, on top of just kind of the, re the, the regular like degrowth environmentalist perspective is um, the wastefulness of it from their perspective is it's not limited to the environmental impact. The wastefulness also has to do with that it doesn't just have zero value. It has negative value because you're destroying seniorage profits um, from their <laughs> worldview. From my worldview, I see seniorage profits is actually being profoundly immoral. And I think that this is the perspective that is uh, written out in a really great piece uh, by Guido Holzman of the ethics of money production. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's actually, uh, to, to me, it's actually a religious belief, uh, personally, as a Catholic, uh, that uh, monopoly seniorage rents are a form of theft. Uh, you know, this, it's, it's counterfeiting by a different word. Um, and that Bitcoin uh, does not have that, uh, doesn't have that bug. Um, and so that, I think, is, is a lot of the anti-Bitcoin mining uh, energy from uh, Elizabeth Warren and others who, you know, they want a world where n n they, not only do they have monopoly senior rents that help finance kind of their agenda, um, but also they can control how other people... Uh, spend their own money. Uh, and so they want to not just control and and they want to do it at a macro level of like they want to control at, at a, uh, in aggregate. Hey, we want more people to spend money right now. And so that's why they like hit the money printing button of, you know, hey, we're going to send everyone a check. Um, and so they they want all this control, arguably, you know, for, for good reasons, right? That they think that they know better than everyone else mm. uh, and that they should be in charge and that if they are in charge, there will be better outcomes for humanity. And I, I see that as, as just pure arrogance, right? It's, it's this pride and ego of, uh, hey, I am omniscient and, you know, I, I can know what good, steward, good stewardship of capital is. Um, and, and I think that ultimately what ends up happening anyway is that it's not it's not the quote unquote good people uh, who end up in charge uh, of these mechanisms. It's it's the people who are cunning enough, right, to uh, weasel their way in and to get their percentage, right. And so, uh, you know, I've heard stories of fraud with like the PPE loans, for example, like uh, during um, uh, COVID. Um, but then also just during the, the, the bailouts, right? You've got these uh, bank bailouts 
you know, Elizabeth Warren says, oh, you know, if if I were in charge, I wouldn't let these CEOs have these big bonuses. It's like, okay, but you're not in charge. And simultaneously, you are promoting this fiat system as a whole. Um, Because it's it's also, you know, she's basically uh, is able to um, advocate for a financial system and and a form of centralization where, yes, in an ideal world, if the gatekeepers, if the centralized, if the central planners are uh, great, then you'll get a good outcome. But then she's not mapping that to the reality of that's not who ends up at the top of of, uh, these authorities. And so um, she just has like an unrealistic understanding of humanity. First of all, you can rant anytime you want on this show. uh, And I appreciate that. What a what an intro, really. I'm I'm trying to decide which part to unpack because there are a lot there. And. I mean, perhaps we, we should start at the, at the end, which is also in a way the beginning, which is folks like Elizabeth Warren. And she actually wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't Warren have a pretty heavy hand in the TARP program, the trouble, or Troubled Asset Relief Program during or in the post-2008 era where she was trying to manage some of the, the fallout from that and decide what to do with some? I'm not, I'm not super deep on that. Do you? Am I correct there? She was fairly high up in that program. I think that you're, you might be referring to Neil Kashkari, who is another uh, antagonist in the fiat camp. Um, I think she was involved with just activism for Wall Street reform. Uh, But I'd have to go and look what her role was with TARP because um, lots of shenanigans over there. It it's it is just kind of ridiculous, and I love where you started with just going up the, taking things to their logical next step, right? Because for so many of these arguments against Bitcoin mining to hold any sort of leaky you know water, you need to stop your logic like after one or two steps. Like you need to say, okay, Bitcoin miners shouldn't. Uh, they're using too much electricity, and that is bad. But and the electricity is. We're also saying that it's dirty. Um, we're not talking about the fact that we're not going to go any further and say, okay, well, what's our electricity, you know, our energy mix in the U S where does most of our electricity come from? And, you know, we're saying that these Bitcoin miners alone are burning the planet because of their efforts in the USA to say nothing of China's energy mix or India's energy mix, or, you know, that are, uh, uh, China being like what? multiple times larger than the U.S. in terms of energy usage. And also, I think they use like 70% coal still over there, which, you know, more power to them. But you have to suspend your logic at a certain point in order for you to even believe you are making some sort of intelligent argument. I wonder, I mean, because you've spent now a good amount of time, uh, I think, at the at the state level and at the local level, talking with legislators and people who are you know, policymakers. From what you've seen, are these people generally operating in good faith? And and think and is it just an issue of of bad information? Like they've just been fed bad information by their aides who just didn't do the right research, or you know, is it is it one of those don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence type of things, or is there a little bit of both? Like how do you see that at the local and state level, and then at the larger national level? Yeah, I I find it fascinating because um, on the surface, you have a lot of formalism, right? Uh, 
uh, oh, this is very orderly, right? Uh, every, you know, bill has a number to it and there's a defined process for everything. And so uh, what a great system. It's all just kind of straight lines across, right? You just need to check boxes and um, it's just, you know, bureaucratic paperwork. But then once you actually go in the trenches, you're, it's just, it's pure chaos, right? There's, there's uh, people just lobbying each other left and right. Uh, so you've got... Uh, trade associations that are lobbying, you've got environmentalists that are lobbying, and you've got, um, you know, senators lobbying representatives and vice versa, and um, staff lobbying the senator, or uh, the, the, the other part of this, too, is that it doesn't fall neatly on Republican or Democrat. Um, so part of the chaos is that they're trying to uh, have a say in every single issue in society, right? So uh, it, a modern politician has to have a position on literally every issue you could think of. And if they don't, then they are just, they're not qualified to, to be in office, apparently. Uh, so uh, that's kind of absurd because that means that they have to uh, get sm smart, right? They have to get information about every issue. Um, and a lot of these issues are probably very nuanced and multifaceted and complex and probably, you know, the government might not even have a role in being involved in it, but they're kind of just, you know, doing something. Uh, but the the other piece of that, though, is that they do end up specializing somewhat. So some politicians will get particularly interested in energy policy uh, or they'll get really interested in, um, I don't know, uh, I'm just thinking about energy, energy. That's the only like topic that I guess I'm interested in right now, S but, stick on, or, you know, yeah. finance, right. Or banking. Or sure. Something. But, um, th they, uh, so they're, but, or healthcare, uh, is another big one, you know, but the, the problem is that here in Texas in particular is that there's a very limited amount of time. So the legislature meets every two years. Um, but even in Washington, D.C., there's a limited amount of time in the sense of um, you have to to make anything happen. You have to get a bunch of people's attention. Right. Uh, and in that way, I would actually liken the political system to it's very much like social media. Right. That um, there's particular things that are happening that have people's attention that are in the zeitgeist that are part of the news cycle. And that um, if you you know, it, it just makes them ripe for um, legislation or regulatory action or uh, a lawsuit or something like that, right? So um, I think that a lot of, th there's, uh, th I, th I think that there's a wide spectrum of motivations uh, on the part of policymakers. I think that the majority of them uh, do actually want good policy. Um, a lot of them have kids, uh, you know, so uh, I do think that to an extent they're like they are thinking about trying to, you know, make a better world for their kids. Um, some of them d uh, are childless. Uh, and I think that's a problem. I think there should probably be rules around that. I don't think you should be allowed to, you know, be in a decision making position if, you're, uh, if you don't have any stake in the future. But um, the the other part of it, too, I think, the from a policy perspective, is that um, a, a lot of them like they they learned they might have learned about some of these issues from an academic perspective that like they got a degree in this 20 years ago and now they're an expert 
and that they might have a priori's right they might have biases either for an industry for example they they might like be uh really on the side of the industry because they're looking for a revolving door opportunity to jump ship into you know the private sector so they're like developing good relationships with people uh or uh they see themselves as just basically like uh unhinged mall cop right who's like on the beat and uh takes their job super seriously and is you know if if they catch you yelling your friend's name they're they're going to tell write a ticket about how you shouldn't yell in the mall you know it's like they're really uh they're there to power trip you know it's not they're not there in the public interest um and and then i think that there's like the activist ideologues um on the right i think this usually ends up being either a religious thing or a uh libertarian thing um on the left i think that it it's usually the a religious thing like but they're they're worshiping mother nature right it's just it's just repackaged Gaia pagan worship uh, from, you know, pre-Christian times. Uh, but uh, they they also, I think that, you know, um, some of them have been accused of being sat satanic cults. Uh, so I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that would be quite shocking. Uh, but, you know, we, we read rumors uh, in the news. I mean, not uh, so shocking, though, also, you know, in some <laughs> cases. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, they they balance, most of them, the majority, I think, balance wanting good policy with also being responsive to their constituents so that they get reelected or reappointed or whatever it is. Um, and so that's a really, I think that's a the best part about the, how the United States government is set up is that every two years we vote and we can replace the entire House of Representatives at the federal level in two years. Um, I, th I think that that is really uh, fantastic. Uh, and so the kind of the orderly transition of power that, you know, that I, I think that's what has prevented the United States from going through uh, what other countries have had. Like France, France is on its fifth republic. Um, you know, we've had a lot of... Uh, problems like i so anyway um there's there's the responsiveness to voters and then the other really nice thing the united states has is an independent judiciary um and kind of the checks and balances that you get between the legislative branch the executive branch and the judicial branch and so this is probably a good place to segue into uh, kind of what's going on in Bitcoin mining from a policy perspective uh, today. If it's, you like you, to. it's like you read my mind. Uh, are we, uh, perfect segue into the whole EIA uh, quote unquote emergency order and and all of that. So can you can you walk us through because you've been I, I'm getting a lot of my news on this from you and could, because you've been right on the front lines of it. But for anybody maybe who's not familiar with how this saga is playing out so far, can you kind of start us what it was back at like the uh, beginning of February, end of January, they released the uh, uh, the order that they were going to initiate some some data collection, an emergency order. Can you kind of talk about how that came to be? And then what has happened in the month since uh, they they put that out there? Because it feels like it's been more than that, but I think it's only been like yeah. a month, right? 
It's been 50 years. Uh, so this started <laughs> in 1971 uh, when we left the gold standard. <laughs> I don't know why you thought that it started Sorry, months ago. Sorry, that, that was foolish of me. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the inflation, uh, rising energy prices, they put price controls in place. And so then they had to have rationing. And so they needed to collect data to ration uh, energy. So it's just pure fiat, right? It's just like, yeah. this is it, it, insanity. So they created this uh, like uh, whole framework for, you know, gathering information surveys. Um, now, uh, the 1970s, because of all that was going on, it led to the government uh, flooding the private sector with forms. You know, everyone in the United States was spending every day of their life filling out forms for the government, explaining minute details of how they're using energy, what food they're eating. You know, it's just uh, what their leisure time was spent on. Uh, it was just forms and forms and forms. So, uh, the, um, in 1980, they passed the Paperwork Reduction Act. that said, hey, okay, no more forms. Uh, you guys have to, you have to substantiate why you need to collect this data. Like you can't just collect data for the sake of collecting data. You have to actually explain what you're going to do with this information and why it's useful. And people can challenge you on this, uh, you know? Um, and so the way we're going to do this is that if you want, if you want to put out a form to the public, first of all, you have to announce that you're going to do this. And so this is called public notice. You you publish the proposed form, and then you open it up for comments. And you say, "All right, let's get feedback from the American public. Why do why here's you know, we got a new form for you know how many bowel movements you have per day, right? Like this is the data that we need to collect going forward just to make sure America is healthy, just like 100. Um, percent And then uh, everyone submit comments. You've got several weeks to submit comments, and then. Um, after that, they have to review all the comments and they have to either take them into account or explain why they did not take the comments into account, right? Or the idea or whatever. Uh, and if they don't do that, then they can get challenged in court, right? So all of this allows you to have kind of a level of review and uh, transparency that I think is just good government. Uh, I don't think it's particularly controversial. I mean, if we're going to do forms, right? My view would be that, no, there's no forums. You can't propose forums. There's no process for that. No. <laughs> the process is you ask for a form and I say no. Uh, but uh, that's not the world we live in. So, you know, the, the, the compromise is, all right, you can have forums, but you have to, like, prove that you actually need forms. Um, and they said that, hey, look, there's, there's some exceptions, right? If, if there's an emergency you can send the form out right away and uh that's okay because it's an emergency uh and the emergency is if there's if it's if it's reasonably likely that your public harm is going to happen if you don't wait a few weeks right uh you know bef of getting comments back and reviewing them and responding to them although i say a few weeks sometimes if you get like really super high quality comments uh, it might take years. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's part of the 
challenge of being a bureaucrat is that you have to respond to <laughs> to uh, some pretty nuanced comments sometimes. So <laughs> it can take a while, but you have to follow the rules, right? I mean, this is what uh, this is what we all consent to, uh, you know, as part of our uh, what is that called? The, the, the they have the uh, social contract. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, this, this is our democracy that we have to defend. So uh, the so. If there's a reasonable likelihood that there's going to be public harm if, you know, you don't rush this form out to the public, then there's an exception. You can have an emergency. So the Secretary of Energy, um, Granholm, she is responsible for this area of regulatory matters. And um, last year, she was testifying in front of the Senate. Uh, the um, highly, highly regarded senator from Massachusetts, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, she was uh, grilling Secretary Granholm on um, when she was going to start collecting data from Bitcoin miners. Secretary Granholm, when you came before this committee last year, I asked you if the federal government knew how many crypto miners are operating in the United States and how much energy they're consuming. And you said that wasn't being tracked and that more data would be needed. So here we are, a year later, is the Department of Energy formal, formally tracking crypto miners yet? Great. First of all, thank you so much for your leadership in this, because I do think that you have um, unearthed a massive uh, problem. And so we don't know how many miners there are. We don't know where they are. We, all, all of them, I mean, some of them you do, but some of them, you, many of them you don't. A lot of them are just underground. Some of them are small operators. So as you and I have discussed, we have uh, charged our uh, Energy Information Administration with figuring out how to mandate a reporting of these entities. Now, that's complicated, as you know, because they are, many of them are underground. And so, even so, the utilities may not know right. where the, the draw is coming from. When was she going to send the form out and the survey? And that she had asked, Elizabeth Warren had asked Secretary Granholm to do this a year before. So this would be in 2022 that she was asked to do this. And um, Secretary Granholm was, uh, I'll say that uh, she, she did not, seem to view this as an emergency at all. <laughs> so, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, given that crypto mining undermines all of our other climate work, we can't afford to delay on this. There's a lot of urgency around this. So I want to talk for just a second about the authority you have to gather information on this. Let me ask Secretary Granholm, do you have the authority to mandate that crypto miners disclose information about their energy consumption. We have the mandate authority. Her response was that um, before we can create the form, before we can create the survey, we need to get survey data. <laughs> this is, it's very circular. We need to get <laughs> survey data from another form that is currently being filled out by people that's going to be compiled, and then we'll be able to create the next form. <laughs> so uh, in your response to a letter I sent you in February, you indicated that the Energy Information Administration 
we'll first need to develop a new survey program to begin collecting information from crypto miners. By when do you expect to field this survey and use it to gather data from crypto miners on a mandatory basis? Yeah. We, are, we um, first of all, are looking at creating the survey from um, a regular report that is an electricity gathering report that we have now asked to include crypto as part of it. That report from, the, from NREL will be completed by the end of this year on which the Energy Information Administration can base its survey. So it's going to take some time for them to be able to craft the survey from the information that they receive from the NREL report, but know that that is happening, and we are um, pushing to accelerate the timelines okay, because so, it is. So by the end of this year, you will have a report on mandatory reporting, putting a... We'll have a I want to make sure I know what yeah, we're yeah, No, no, we'll have when. a report that will have gathered, not fully, but enough m information to be able to craft the framework for the survey. And Elizabeth Warren's like, okay, but are you telling me this is going to be in 2024? And Secretary Granholm is like, well, I hope so. And, and, and Senator Warren looks just enraged. She's like, you know, I'm going to hold you to it. You, you got to get it out. So we won't be able to get the survey out, the mandatory survey, by the end of this year. But we will have the report done, and the survey will uh, be constructed from that. Okay, and we are certain we're going to get that mandatory survey out then sometime in 2024? I, I hope so, but I don't want to... Uh... TikTok! And she's like, this is an emergency because of the climate. The climate, this is the climate emergency. I mean, look... We're running out of time here. Crypto mining's energy use truly undermines our efforts to fight climate change, and we are out of time. We need to understand the full scope of the problem, and that starts with the authorities you have. So I hope that the next time we come back, you will tell me that you now have that survey in place, and we are getting mandatory reporting from the crypto mining companies. I hope so, too. Going to hold you to it. Uh, and that... That seems rather irrelevant to me, but I guess she thought that that was relevant to whether this form comes out or not. Um, and so uh, then uh, we don't hear about it for several, for nine months, right? And then in January of this year, um, the EIA administrator, uh, D. Carolis, and I looked at it into his background, I would actually get along really well with this guy. Uh, he writes Python code. Uh, I love Python. Uh, he's into data and SQL. So am I. Uh, I think that we would just we'd nerd out on uh, energy data all day long. Uh, but unfortunately, that's that's just not uh, that's not <laughs> what God put him on Earth to do. Uh, so uh, he sends a letter to the Office of Management and Budget (OMB). Uh, the uh, Office of uh, Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA. Um, and these guys are the forum gatekeepers. So they're the ones that are tasked with evaluating literally every single form in the federal government has to go through this, this team. And uh, they will tell you if your form is, uh, you know, valid or invalid. They're a form node, right? They're a full form mm -hmm. node. Uh, is what OIRA is. 
And so he sends a letter saying, hey, there's an emergency. Now, his justification for the emergency is that the Bitcoin price went up, which to me is hilarious. This is the first time in American history that we've had a government official declare a federal emergency because the Bitcoin price went up 50% at the time. Now it's up 100%. So uh, I don't know if the emergency got worse or not, because can can you really, if if the emergency goes from zero to zero, it doesn't really get worse. So it, it I guess we're continuing the non-emergency situation here. Um, and basically his his judgment was that uh, if the Bitcoin price pumps, then there's going to be more Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin mining uh, is already one to two percent of the grid, uh, which I mean, I think that's actually pretty accurate. Uh, one to two percent of the grid in the United States. Uh, so huge congratulations to the Bitcoin mining industry. This is a tremendous accomplishment. And uh, I I would hope that the Department of Energy would give us an award, uh, you know, t- a trophy saying, hey, like, congratulations on being the fastest growing load in the United States. This is a huge accomplishment from an electrical engineering perspective, and it enables the nation to be a leader in Bitcoin mining, which is uh, really awesome. Um, but I don't think they see it that way. They see it as, uh-oh, they're growing so so rapidly, and if the Bitcoin price is going up, they're going to grow even faster. Um, now, there's not really any evidence showing that um, the Bitcoin price going up has led to a substantial increase in Bitcoin mining in the United States because it takes years to get the permits. Uh, yeah, you have to get permits uh, to uh, develop a Bitcoin mining facility. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the facility, the, our Corsicana facility has been in the works for at least a couple of years. Um, and, you know, you've got to get approval from ERCOT, the grid, right? You've got to get approval from uh, the environmental uh, uh, department here in Texas. You've got, you know, there's so there's a long list of approvals you've got to get. And uh, on top of that, you have to have the capital to do it. And you have to have a long-term vision for Bitcoin mining. And so if the Bitcoin price pumps, you know, 10% in a day, it's not like it's like, oh, let's let's go add 10%, uh, you know, to our operation. It's like um, it, it, to add 10% to our operation, it will take uh, this many months and years, you know, it's like, so when we look at the data of how has Bitcoin mining grown over the past six months, not by a lot uh, in Texas, it's basically, uh, I, I, I believe that it's gone from 2.6 to 2.8 uh, gigawatts, which is just, it's just an increase of 200 megawatts, which I mean, to some people, I guess, you know, so anyway, um, the, the, but that's a distraction because ultimately his argument is that if we add lots of gigawatts to the grid of Bitcoin mining, that this is going to contribute to uh, peak load. Uh, and that's actually demonstrably false. Uh, all of the scientific data from academia shows the diametric opposite that Bitcoin miners are actually negatively correlated with peak load. Uh, They load shed because peak load is uh, the cause of high prices in the real-time electricity wholesale market. 
And if peak load is not causing high prices and not causing Bitcoin miners to turn off, um, your grid has a much bigger problem uh, because uh, it is dysfunctional in the sense that price signals are not reflecting physical reality of the grid. Uh, and that is a failure mode. And you need to uh, fix the regulatory framework around your grid, the marketplace structure of your grid to accommodate that. ERCOT does not have that problem. ERCOT is actually, I would say, at the forefront of integrating large flexible loads with uh, the grid and doing so in a way that um, is really helping balance the grid and is a tremendous public benefit, not at all a public harm in any way. It's not even reasonably likely. Uh, and so uh, it's reasonably likely that it's a public benefit. Uh, I would argue that it's just beyond any reasonable doubt, just based on the evidence that exists uh, out there. And um, that's why we decided Riot and Texas Blockchain Council, which represents a lot of Texas miners, and uh, the Digital Chamber of Commerce, which represents uh, Bitcoin miners nationally. Um, from our perspective, this process of declaring a fake emergency in order to avoid public notice and comment, in order to avoid any kind of transparency and feedback uh, was not appropriate. Uh, and um, that ultimately what would best serve policymakers would be to follow the law, uh, which is to do public notice and comment. Um, and uh, Unfortunately, the Biden administration did not see it that way. Uh, so as a last resort, uh, we did have to sue them in federal court uh, in the uh, Western District of Texas. Uh, so uh, the Honorable Judge Alan Albright is uh, kind of the federal judge that uh, is there in Waco, Texas, uh, famous for a number of different reasons. Um, and the really, uh, you know, the reason why we were in Waco with Judge Albright was because Riot has uh, one of the largest Bitcoin mining facilities in the world, um, not far from Waco, uh, in a beautiful town called Rockdale that has really fresh air. Uh, it's not Rockland, uh, which is what the New York Times thought it was, uh, but uh, it is Rockdale. And uh, there we have... Um, our facility, so that basically kind of establishes um, where it makes sense to do the lawsuit. Um, and we filed this the day before the survey was due. Uh, we just didn't have a lot of time. Uh, the, you know, the EIA was really in a, I want to say metaphorical sense, but it's not really that metaphorical is that they put a gun to our head of, Hey, if you don't fill this out, uh, you're going to go to prison. You're going to pay fines, uh, which is pretty insane way of, uh, you know, working with folks. Uh, I think they should try to be more professional than that. Um, and so, uh, that, you know, we, we took it to federal court and we said, Hey, can we please get a temporary restraining order? Right. These people are stalking us. They're trying to invade our privacy. 
we need a TRO, a restraining order to like keep them away from us, right? To, they need to, uh, we need the court to establish some order here because these people are acting completely illegally, right? Uh, and uh, our lawsuit, uh, I really recommend people to read it if they're interested in, 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 in the law because um, there were a tremendous number of crimes committed by the government uh, in uh, putting together this survey and uh, the the so in any case the judge uh, immediately granted our temporary restraining order because I think that I don't want to speak for him but based on what he wrote in uh, the the official court document you know he seems to have pretty quickly um, uh, come to the conclusion that uh, Texas Blockchain Council and Riot really are victims of uh, government overreach and just total lawlessness uh, by this uh, Biden administration that they uh, violated several statutes and just were operating. They'd gone rogue, basically. Uh, they weren't, um, you know, uh, in any way uh, performing the duties that they'd sworn to, to, to perform. It's clear that the government has no problem breaking the law when it suits them, so if you want to protect your Bitcoin from unlawful seizure, head to bitbox.swiss slash walker and use the promo code walker for 5% off the Bitcoin-only Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Then, use that Bitbox O2 to get your Bitcoin off the exchange and into your own self-custody. The Bitbox O2 is easy as hell to use whether you're new to Bitcoin or a seasoned psychopath. It is Bitcoin only, it is fully open source, and you can head to their GitHub and check for yourself. There's no need to trust me. Plus, when you go to bitbox.swiss walker and use promo code walker, not only do you get 5% off, but you also help support this fucking podcast. So thank you. So after that, um, the judge set a hearing for uh, Wednesday of this week. Uh, as we approached the hearing, uh, it got canceled, uh, and, uh, it was announced that an agreement had been reached. Uh, and then today on Friday, uh, the agreement was, uh, you know, published, uh, publicly. And basically, you know, what the agreement is, is that the government is going to destroy any data that they received from this illegal survey, uh, and that they're going to start over and actually follow the law, right, of, doing public notice and comment, not pulling the fire alarm when there's no fire, right? Not crying wolf when there's no wolf. Uh, they, they have to cut that. So they're, 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 they're cutting that out. They're not doing that anymore. Uh, they're following the law uh, and, and they're paying uh, attorney's fees, right? Because uh, of the inconvenience that they created for uh, through their um, uh terrible, terrible approach to, to policy in this area. And I think that it's a tremendous win on a number of different levels. On a very practical level, it's really important for us to provide lots of comments uh, to uh, steer kind of the direction in which any kind of mining survey should go in. Um, because a... I actually do think that there's a really great story of demand response that uh, this survey could unearth. 
um, and show how uh, Bitcoin mining is a key part of the energy transition. So um, I think that there's a really positive story here, uh, but we have to make sure that the survey is crafted in a way that um, gets both the benefits and the risks, right? If we only focus on kind of the costs and the risks, then we, we miss the benefits. Uh, so that I think is a, a practical reason for why, you know, we need to have the opportunity to provide comments before being forced, you know, by law to have a mandatory survey. Um, two is that there's no emergency, right? I mean, look, Elizabeth Warren has been pushing this for two years, right? So just uh, let's look at reality here, which is that there's no emergency. If there was an emergency, then there would already be public harm, right? There would already be uh, something bad happening. I don't even know, you know, blackouts, right? ERCOT, look, here's the, here's, here, I think here's the, the main problem that they have with the emergency argument, which is that ERCOT is not going to connect a load that can cause public harm, right? They, they, it would be, they, 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 they would be in legal trouble if they did that, right? That, that is negligence uh, on their part. And so uh, that just wouldn't happen. Um, now, I also think that it's a win from a regulatory perspective that um, I, it's really important for all of the regulators in the United States to understand that Bitcoin miners are uh, industry stakeholders like any other industry stakeholders, right? So uh, you have to approach it that way. If you approach it, uh, you know, through a dogmatic lens of, hey, I don't like Bitcoin, only criminals use Bitcoin, Bitcoin miners are criminals, and therefore I'm going to just break every law. I'm going to commit the worst crimes possible to prove that they are criminals. It's like, that's really going to get you wrecked in federal court, right? You have to follow the law, even if you think Bitcoin miners are criminals, and we're not. And so due to the fact that we're not criminals, you're really going to have a lot of trouble with the fact patterns as they get laid out in federal court. So rather than ending up having to pay for attorney's fees for Bitcoin miners due to your just ideological craziness, just accept that Bitcoin miners are an industry stakeholder like any other. Treat us with whatever respect you would treat uh, a solar farm or a battery manufacturer, right? Like we're all part of the energy transition. And so uh, I think that we got to work together. Uh, and so we're, you know, Bitcoin miners are not opposed in principle to uh, transparency and to doing surveys and to having a collaborative working relationship with regulators. What we are opposed to is uh, we're opposed to crime really is what we're opposed to. So uh, in this case, crimes were committed. We're opposed to that. Uh, we will take you to federal court if you commit crimes. Uh, so I think that's reasonable. I would say it's, it's highly reasonable. And first of all, congratulations on the restraining order and the the victory here because it's not just a victory for miners it's a victory for i think americans in general because we have rule of law in the united states or we're supposed to we are not going to continue functioning in the way that we have been six pretty successfully on the world stage if that rule of law breaks down 
because the rule of law is at, at its most fundamental level. The purpose of the law is to organize for the collective defense of private property, not to throw innumerable onerous forms at somebody until they bend the knee and shut down their operations because you don't happen to like what they do because you got some bad information from your staff. So congratulations for that. And thank you for going to bat on behalf of the American people. I want to maybe ask you a little bit to go a little bit deeper into uh, demand response and kind of maybe we can set the stage with this. Can, uh, instead of explain it like I'm five, ELA five, can you explain it like I'm Elizabeth Warren or one of her staffers and tell me what exactly do Bitcoin miners do? And then why are Bitcoin miners ideally positioned to uh, fill this gap of demand response? And, and what is that demand response and how does it make the lives of everyone better or does it make them worse? What, what does all of that mean? Because I think Bitcoin is such a deep rabbit hole by itself. And the more I start to learn about energy, the more I realize that is a cavernous rabbit hole as well, which I am barely scratching the surface. And I think most people have absolutely no idea what's going on. They just think I, I plug in my something to the wall and I get electricity. And that's as much as I know about the energy grid. And so can you maybe give like the the background that people need to be able to understand here's where Bitcoin, what Bitcoin miners do. Here's where they sit in, uh, like in Texas, for example, you know, cause that's where you guys have multiple operations and how does that generally contribute, uh, to the grid, uh, in what apparently Warren sees and others see as a negative way. But I think what is demonstrably true is that it's actually a very positive way and ultimately is to the benefit of anybody who is also plugging into that grid. Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, the Texas grid, I think, is reflective of the general uh, energy transition theme of um, we're going we're moving away from coal. First of all, um, you know, Texas used to basically be 100 percent coal. Uh, it, it wasn't so long ago. Um, now, the first thing we, we moved towards was natural gas, uh, natural gas you know, is fascinating because you're basically using a, uh, a jet turbine, right, from uh, an aircraft, uh, and you're, you're bolting it to the ground and you're generating electricity with it. Um, and these natural gas turbines f per megawatt of electricity generate 50% less CO2 emissions, car greenhouse gases, uh, than uh, a, a typical coal plant does. Um, now, the other advantages that they have, one is that they are incredibly inexpensive uh, from both a capital expense perspective, but also from a natural gas fuel price perspective that the price of natural gas today is just it's at historic lows. Uh, and uh, it's because it's an associated gas in the sense that um, you've got people drilling for very expensive oil and in Texas, and uh, they're bringing that expensive oil to market, but uh, the natural gas that is also a part of these uh, wells that are coming out of the drills, um, they, it's kind of just extra. And so they just need a way to get rid of it. Uh, so sometimes you have flared gas mining, right, where people are uh, Bitcoin mining right at the wellhead. Um, Riot does uh, basically the equivalent, except at the greater scale of the grid, right, that now you have uh, pipelines bringing gas from the wellhead to 
large, highly efficient combined cycle gas turbines that are converting it into electricity. Uh, and then um, that way you, you are not wasting or flaring natural gas. Um, now, what we started seeing uh, with what's called the performance tax credits. So these are uh, IRS uh, you know, tax uh, advantages that you get from producing electricity using technology like wind, like solar. And uh, these subsidies have uh, tremendously increased the deployment of those generating resources in Texas, in the ERCOT market. And so um, now wind and solar on some days are producing 60 to 80 percent of the electricity in Texas. Um, on other, at other times, they're producing 0%. Uh, and so this is where we have to really think in a really nuanced manner about the energy transition, which is that um, wind and solar, while they are the, they're very cost competitive as, uh, as resources, um, with the caveat that they're only cost competitive if you're assuming that the timing of the electricity consumption matches up with the timing of electricity production. Now, if you have any differences in the timing, well, now you're going to have to firm it up either with a battery or with a peaker plant, like a natural gas peaker plant that would kick on when you just don't have enough wind or not enough sun or, or some combination thereof. Um, batteries are super expensive, uh, but you know it's also the case that peaker plants are expensive in the sense that they're basically off like 98% of the time, right? So they're just this giant capital good, right? This giant... Uh, turbine that is sitting there off 98% of the time, just for that 2% of the time that you turn it on because there's just, you know, not enough wind and there's uh, too much too much demand. So um, Bitcoin mining is taking that flexibility, but on the load side. So you can just turn off a Bitcoin mining facility to offset a lack of generation on the renewable side. Um, and so that's really the, the value proposition in this energy transition is that in Texas in the morning uh, when, when the sun has not risen yet, uh, but uh, the wind is starting to fall um, and everyone's turning on their lights, uh, you can have price spikes. And we've seen those uh, happen. Uh, you can get up to $5,000 a megawatt right, in a very short window of time just because you have a very strong mismatch of supply and demand. Same story in the evening, right, uh, when the sun is, is going down and the wind is not picking up quickly enough um, and everyone's getting home from work and turning on their lights and, and all that. Um, again, huge price volatility. Um, this price volatility has nothing to do with the price of natural gas, right? Uh, and this is where it, it's really funny. The, the Sierra Club, they put out a document saying that uh, Texas has volatile electricity prices due to the price of natural gas. And I just laughed out loud. Like, what an absurd statement to make. Um, I look at the price of electricity every day, right, just because of, you know, working for Riot. And, um, look, the, the price of electricity is, is volatile in Texas because renewables, intermittent generation of solar and wind is volatile, right? There's just um, – there, okay, so The anyway, sun sets, in other words. You know, yeah, it, the sun sets. Because if you look at – if you look at the price of natural gas, you're basically saying, uh, let's call it like $40, $50 per megawatt, right? And um, 
when you have a scarcity and so you're at five thousand dollars a megawatt, so there's just no way the price of natural gas is causing five thousand dollars a megawatt. Uh, it is a couple of orders of magnitude lower than that. Um, and, and then same thing with um, you know Bitcoin mining. People will say, oh, Bitcoin miners are causing these high prices. Also absurd, because the break even for a Bitcoin miner is around let's let's call it roughly eighty to one hundred twenty dollars per megawatt. So that means that Bitcoin miners turn off. I, I think it's fair to say all Bitcoin miners that are doing economic demand response are curtailing and are all already off by the time you reach $1,000 a megawatt um, and then much less $2,000 a megawatt or $3,000 per megawatt. Like all the Bitcoin miners are already off. There's no way they are contributing to that price. The only way that they are contributing to that price is by being sellers of electricity in the market and helping lower the, the electricity price, right? Um, and uh, at those prices, really what you have are batteries uh, because uh, batteries are expensive to cycle and batteries will play games of, uh, they, you know, in their defense, like, they do need to have large amounts of revenue in order to justify their capital costs. Um, but the idea that Bitcoin miners are causing $5,000 a megawatt, I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's absurd. Um, and then they'll also say, oh, yeah, okay, but maybe you're not contributing to the peak, but you're increasing the average price of electricity. And it's like, look, if the average price of electricity is $0 and we increase it to $1, in a sense, yeah, that's that's bad. In another sense, though, uh, at zero dollars, nobody makes any money, and and then you don't have any generation, and then you have five thousand dollars a megawatt, right? It's like choose choose what you want. Like, do you want do you want uh, generators to make some money and stay in the market and have the capacity for those peak demands, or do you want blackouts? Right. Like uh, and I think that that's where the conversation about, oh, Bitcoin miners are increasing the price of electricity in Texas. I mean, it's absurd because, first of all, Texas has the lowest cost of electricity of basically anywhere in the world. Right. I mean, if you look at it, not just on a dollars per megawatt, but also I'd say like dollars per gigawatt. Right. Of how much depth is there to the market? Because I'm sure you can find somewhere that has like really cheap electricity, but you can only buy like two megawatts. Right. And then there's no other capacity. But I'm saying like at the wholesale level, the 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 size and depth of the of the electricity market in Texas, we have the lowest cost of electricity. And I think we'll continue to have the lowest cost of electricity because the cost of natural gas continues to go down the amount of solar power being added to the Texas grid continues to dramatically increase. We're already, I think we're at 12 gigawatts of installed solar capacity. Um, this is capacity where we know that 50% of the day it's at zero, right? Like it's, uh, but in any case, um, the, the, on top of that, we've seen several announcements of uh, new natural gas power plants being built in Texas um, because of the incentives that, by the way, were voted for by the Texas uh, House, Senate, Governor, and by referendum, the people of Texas, they all voted to have more natural gas power plants, right? Uh, and so I think that when people say, oh, we need to, you know, have zero fossil fuels, um, 
they're really going against democracy, right? Because people are voting for fossil fuels. And so, and we should stop calling them fossil fuels. They're hydrocarbons. Um, and I think that, um, you know, in Texas, that really sets up an electricity market where we're going to continue to have the most competitive um, market. Um, and Bitcoin miners are going to contribute a, a, like tremendous amount of flexibility uh, to this. Now, I'd also say that demand response, you can think of it along several different axes. Um, first is just economic curtailment, right? Of, hey, it's the real-time wholesale electricity price above your break-even. Um, and I think that there's uh, basically lots of room for economic curtailment. Uh, then the other piece of it is what's called ancillary services, which is basically not that you're... Um, so with ancillary services, you are signing up in a contract with ERCOT and you are signing over control um, to ERCOT of your generator or of your load. And you're saying, all right, ERCOT, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. You're in charge. Uh, you get to decide whether to turn on my facility or turn off my facility. You get to decide how much electricity I consume because ERCOT needs to procure control over generation and load in order to provide real-time balancing of supply and demand uh, on the electricity grid for electrical engineering reasons, right, of maintaining frequency stability, maintaining voltage support, maintaining, uh, you know, uh, all, all of the... Um, it, and it goes down to like sub-second level, right? So it goes from the the frequency of sub-second level to hey, thirty-minute right forecast miss. Um, and so they need to have uh, resources at their fingertips that they can either uh, deploy or uh, you know wait uh, for things to. Uh, sometimes they they wait to see how things uh, play out, um, and they need to have that control and they need to buy it on the market. Right. If they seize it, right, if they're like, hey, we're actually uh, we're going to have like a command and control type thing. The problem with seizing it is that they don't have uh, economic signal of knowing which resources have uh, are, are kind of the lowest cost. Right. Of um, What if they say, oh, hey, Amazon, turn off this data center. And that data center was supporting a ch children's hospital. And so now the children's hospital is turning off because ERCOT decided to control that load. Like, that wouldn't make any sense. That would be really bad. Uh, so it's better to have a market mechanism where Amazon would say, hey, look, we actually don't care what price you offer us. We would never turn off our data center because we are serving critical uh, infrastructure. And so we're not even going to bid into ancillary services. Um, and meanwhile, Bitcoin miners are like, yeah, sure. I mean, the Bitcoin network continues to function even if we turn off. So uh, we would just miss out on the opportunity cost of $100 a megawatt. So, all right, we'll bid into ancillary services. You can control our load. And same thing for a battery, same thing for a peaker plant, right? Same thing for any load or generator, generator that is flexible, that doesn't have critical, you know, dependencies on it. Um, and so that way you're able to get all of these resources to compete against each other. Right. And get the lowest bids possible. That way you have the lowest cost of procuring your ancillary services and um, you have the lowest cost on society as well. Right. Because if you were doing the command and control thing, you would be increasing the cost on society. Um, so ancillary services, I think, is a critical function for a grid 
right? A grid is kind of a, in a way, it, it, it is a tragedy, the commons public good, but in a way it's not because ERCOT exists, right? ERCOT is a, uh, a legal entity that is in charge of uh, uh, operating and kind of making sure that everyone's following, uh, like, voluntarily connecting to the grid because the rules make sense, right? Um, in a way, I'd kind of, I, I, I'd compare it to like Disneyland of like, hey, yeah, you can enter Disneyland. You got to follow the rules, right? Like there there are some rules about here. This is not your backyard. You can't just do whatever you want. This is Disneyland. Although sometimes you go to Disneyland and you're like, wow, people really can't do anything they want here. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, perhaps some people would say the same thing about ERCOT. Um, and but no, I, there there are stringent requirements about participating in the ERCOT market, and um, that ultimately it there is it is permissioned, right? There is a gatekeeper, uh, and they keep the bar pretty high to make sure that they're fulfilling their critical mission, and it's right in their name, reliability. Right? They're they're just trying to get a hundred percent uptime, and it's really hard, right? It's hard to have a hundred percent uptime in any kind of system. Um, but they've actually done a pretty good job. Uh, in learning from what happened with Winter Storm Yuri, uh, working with stakeholders uh, to create a, a, a grid that is adapting to the energy transition um, and also uh, adapting to the massive load growth in Texas. I ignore the Bitcoin miners. There's so many people moving to Texas. There's so many businesses moving to Texas. There's been massive load growth. We're, we're building semiconductors. We're building liquid natural gas uh, plants were, were, you know, Texas is just booming uh, because Texas, I think, in its DNA is accelerationist, right? We're not, we're not Massachusetts, right? We're not like <laughs> the, the, the D-cell philosophy, like New York of like, we don't want any economic growth. So um, the ERCOT is having to balance massive load growth with massive generation growth with a change in the mix of generation, right? Away from coal towards more natural gas, wind, solar, batteries. Uh, and so th they should really be applauded in uh, their ability to keep the grid running in such a dynamic uh, environment. Thank you for that background on it. Because again, I think so many of these things go completely over most people's heads. And they also think that this electricity that we are fortunate to have in uh, abundance thanks to our energy production is just somehow like sitting there waiting for them um, and that there's nothing that needs to go on behind the scenes for it to happen. It's just when I plug something in, it turns on and great. That's that's all I think about it. So there's this idea that, and you, you genuinely see this idea put forward by people who should know better, but they say, well, you know, Bitcoin miners are using electricity that could be used by other people and for other things. And completely ignoring the fact that, well, that that is what happens. But when Bitcoin miners are using that electricity, it is because there is no other buyer for it. Bitcoin miners being the buyer of first and last resort, being willing to help finance the build out of the grids, but also being willing to pick up the slack when nobody else is going to be buying that energy so that you can still have the load build out that allows people to have no blackouts and a comfortable standard of living because they have low energy prices. And we know that the more humans have harnessed energy over millennia, the greater human flourishing has be, been, the longer lifespans have gone. And this idea, this kind of Massachusetts decelerationist idea 
that you should somehow uh, stop using so much energy. I just think is so ideologically backwards because it's an anti-human idea. You're, you're saying you want humans to flourish less because we, we have the data that shows us over, I mean, if you just have to look back a hundred years, 500 years, a thousand years, the more we've harnessed energy, the better off we've been as a species. And that will continue to be the case. So I appreciate the, uh, the knowledge for folks who may not be so deep down that energy rabbit hole as you. And I want to, I want to kind of go, uh, to jump off of that a little bit and to talk about Bitcoin mining from not just, okay, it is good for helping to stabilize these grids, uh, by being that energy buyer that is able to turn on and turn off instantaneously, which there is nothing else that can do. AI data centers can't do this other, any other Amazon, uh, data centers can't do this. It's Bitcoin miners that can do it and can do it at scale. This also, I think, has huge strategic implications because energy security is national security uh, to, I think, a, a pretty high degree. And right now, the United States has the highest, I believe we have the most hash rate by, by about two times, right? Compared to, is the next up Kazakhstan after the U.S.? Probably, and yeah. I, can, can you talk a little bit about how you, as a, as a Bitcoin miner, view the role of Bitcoin miners as a helping to contribute to overall national security? Because that's something that people on both sides of the aisle scream about day in and day out with different approaches to how the U.S. should have more national security. But I think at the base level, we have to talk about energy and also, well, monetary energy as well. But how do you view that as a Bitcoin miner? And what do you like? What is your message to policymakers who are interested in the national security of the United States and in its continued success? How do Bitcoin miners fit into that equation? Yeah, so uh, Bitcoin mining, it's critical for um, to have as much Bitcoin mining happening in the United States so that we are depriving our adversaries of revenues. Um, and so we know that North Korea, Iran, Russia, um, they, Venezuela, they are mining Bitcoin. And um, quite often, they, you know, they, they, they seize these mining rigs like they're essentially they're they're um, they're abusing their people uh, and exploiting them. Right. Uh, to, and they're, they're mining Bitcoin to get hard currency revenues. And then they use those revenues to uh, go spend it on further oppressing their people um, or uh, even worse, you know, invading neighboring countries or uh, things like that. Um, you know, it just it reminds me of when Bush invaded Iraq. Um, but anyway, the uh, thing is that um, when when they are able to just uh, print money or to mine Bitcoin, uh, then they're able to use those revenues uh, in ways that are not good for the public good. Um, and so when we mine Bitcoin here in the United States, we're taking market share away from uh, foreign, foreign adversaries. And it's really important that um, for, from a policy perspective, the, the key here is that um, these 
the, the, look, somebody is going to mine Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin is decentralized. And so there isn't a world where if we ban Bitcoin mining here in the United States, now nobody in the world can ban Bitcoin. No, you've just increased the profitability of mining Bitcoin everywhere else in the world. Um, and so once that clicks for policymakers, they realize that uh, it's really critical to help Bitcoin miners uh, and to increase the amount of Bitcoin mining uh, here in the United States. So, um, you know, what I would really ask for policymakers to think about is um, how can we like modify the tax code so that Bitcoin miners don't have to pay any taxes? Right. I mean, that would be uh, huge in terms of increasing the national security of the United States. Um, and the the other part is um, the you know capital gains on uh, holding Bitcoin, right? Um, now, on that note of holding Bitcoin, it's not enough for uh, the United States to encourage Bitcoin mining here in the United States. Um, we we also we have to encourage a holding Bitcoin, um, and this is where I think that uh, we've really uh, the government has done a terrible job. Um, you know, kids are going through the school system right now and they're, they're graduating from high school and they don't know how to set up a cold card. You know, it's like it's just absurd levels of myopia at a policy level that, uh, you know, kids don't know how to self-custody in 2024. Um, you know, folks, it's been 15 years like Bitcoin is here to stay. And so the kids have to know how to back up their seed phrases and how to set up a multi-sig and et cetera, right? So um, I think that there's a lot of catching up to do uh, at that level. And whether it's, you know, a public school or a private school or uh, just, you know, um, maybe as part of getting their driver's license, they have to learn about hardware wallets. But anyway, um, the you know, there's lots of policies that we could improve in the United States. Um, now, I think that uh, critically, uh, there is a problem happening with the Biden administration and the U.S. Marshal Service. They are auctioning off Bitcoin that allegedly was involved in a crime a long time ago. Um, and what they should do is hold the Bitcoin. Uh, they should hold the Bitcoin for a number of different reasons. First of all, what if they're wrong? What if the criminal is innocent. The, the the allegations are false or, you know, this person, for whatever reason, they get found innocent by the judicial system. And if their Bitcoin are auctioned off, what's the government going to do? Buy them back? You know, they could sell the Bitcoin today. If they sold the Bitcoin today at $60,000 and the person gets found innocent and the price of Bitcoin is $6 million, you know, the government would have to bankrupt itself to buy back the Bitcoin. It's insanity. So for that reason alone, they should hold the Bitcoin. Second of all, if it does turn out that this guy is guilty and he's a criminal and that, you know, it's okay to seize the Bitcoin. Um, does it really make sense to sell Bitcoin for dollars, given that the government can just print dollars for free? Right. They have seniorage like they there's no reason for them to be negotiating for more dollars. They can just create it out of thin air. They, they don't need dollars. It's like the last resource they need. Um, it, it's, it's like if, 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 if you came to work and you told your boss, hey, I'll work here uh, if you let me breathe oxygen. It's like, okay, 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, like, what a stupid negotiation position to have. You'd have to be senile. You know, you'd have to have mm. lost your mind to have that perspective that you would sell Bitcoin for dollars when you can print an infinite amount of dollars. It's just completely illogical. You'd have, like, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so that would be shocking, uh, I hope there's a cure. Truly. I hope that we find a cure. And, I, th I, you know, they should print dollars to find a cure. Um, anyway, putting that aside, uh, what they need to start developing is a national reserve, right, of saying, okay, we own all this land, right? The federal government owns way too much land out west. They need to sell that land. And instead, they buy Bitcoin, right? Because land, I'm sorry, land is an S-coin, right? It's basically, uh, it's, it's infinite. The universe is expanding. If you go back to your science class, uh, everybody in seventh grade learned this from Bill Nye, that the universe is expanding. There's an infinite amount of space and time. Uh, so uh, to... Um, you know, invest in land is just in 2024 is insanity. What you should be investing in is in the UTXO set. So they should sell the land out there um, and raise uh, Bitcoin. Uh, they, they, you know, why sell it for dollars? They should sell it for Bitcoin. Um, and um, they can add that to a strategic reserve. Um, and what this would enable them to do is essentially back the dollar with Bitcoin because Today, the dollar is not backed by anything, uh, but they do have like Fort Knox, right? They have gold. Now, that's great for movies, right? I mean, awesome Bond movie. It's great. You know, it's thrilling. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, but gold is an S-coin as well, right? There's an infinite amount of gold. They're adding gold to the gold supply every day. If we brought in a gold asteroid, uh, you know, gold would get a zero. Like, it is the most overhyped asset in human history. And, you know, the government, Biden, he's a lot like Peter Schiff, right? In the sense that they both love gold. They own so much gold. I don't know if, I actually don't know if uh, Peter Schiff owns any gold, but Biden has a lot of gold in Fort Knox, right? That um, uh, he's, you know, arguably Biden is a bigger gold bug than Peter Schiff. I, I think that's, Unless Biden announces today that he is selling all of the gold in the United States, which, frankly, he should do so that he can buy Bitcoin. He should sell all of the gold, just flood the market, just drive the price of gold to zero and accumulate Bitcoin. Now, I know Peter Schiff wouldn't be a fan of it, but it's the logical, rational policy for the government to adopt. Um, and so they'd be able to develop a strategic reserve that, you know, is comparable to the petroleum reserve. Now, speaking of the petroleum reserve, <laughs> they should sell all of that oil and buy Bitcoin. Oil is an S-coin. They're constantly finding new massive oil reserves. There's no reason to be hoarding it in, you know in the United States when we could just sell it and buy Bitcoin instead. So, um, you know, the strategic, strategic petroleum reserve, it's anachronistic. It, it dates back decades. It's, you know, um, gosh, I guess our great grandparents, you know, like the, it's just, it's so old. Um, so gold is old, old oil is old, land is old. And what, you know, they need to, um, essentially divest from all of these legacy assets and put it all into Bitcoin and then 
all they need to do is just sit on the Bitcoin and stop issuing dollars. This is so important. This is what Malay passed a law. He said, it is now illegal to print Argentine pesos to finance the government, right, for the, the deficit. You can only print Argentine pesos to buy dollars. Now, he's almost right, right? He's, he almost got it. And so in the United States, they should only be allowed to print dollars to buy Bitcoin, right? Uh, and arguably, the logical step were the, would be for them to buy Bitcoin and print dollars until the dollar is worthless, right? Because then at that point, they would have a massive Bitcoin reserve. The dollar would be worthless. But you know what? That means that we don't owe any money to China. All of those treasuries that China is holding are worthless. All of that money that we owed to foreigners, kaput, gone. All the student loan debt. Our generation is saddled with student loan debt. And what it is time for is a jubilee of forgiving all debt by driving the value of the currency to zero. That way we can really lift up the most vulnerable in society and give them an opportunity to succeed. And so that's why it's so critical from a policy perspective to print so many dollars to buy Bitcoin that the dollar goes to zero. You've made an incredibly compelling argument that I think needs to be taken to the Senate floor honestly, because at this point, it almost seems irresponsible that that we're not that we're currently, you know, the yeah, dollars are being printed, but they're not going to Bitcoin. And for every dollar that is printed that is not being used to buy Bitcoin, it feels like a crime against the American people. It feels it feels like it feels like you're saying, I don't want to lift up everyone in this country to the highest point that they can be, I want them to wallow in the mud. And I don't think that's the message that the government wants to send, is it? Because it's the one that they're sending through their actions right now. But if they, you know, they're worried about this student loan problem, right? And they're trying to finance it right now by, well, who knows where that money's coming from? I mean, it's being created out of nothing to, to get rid of that debt. But why are they not just taking it a step further, as you said, buying Bitcoin with those printed dollars and in the meantime, getting rid of all of our debts around the world because the debts are then they're worth less and less until they're worth less. I mean, it's really a brilliant, <clears throat> a brilliant strategy. And as the holder and printer of the world's reserve currency, which with seniorage over every other country who has their own seniorage, we're in a unique position to do that. It'd be quite a, uh, quite a move for the American people and for those who are very concerned about national security. I can't imagine our country becoming any more secure than if we just turn the printers on, rip the knob off, and just continually buy Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. I mean, from a national security perspective, what you would have is a phoenix emerging from the ashes of the dollar, right? Uh, a, uh, a beautiful orange uh, phoenix that looks like a honey badger, actually. Uh, it's a honey badger emerging from the ashes of the dollar. And uh, that would actually position the U.S. to continue to be the global leader in commerce, in finance, et cetera. Um, and what we would do with the reserves is that, first of all, um, all the people that were negatively impacted by Ponzi schemes like Social Security, um, mm -hmm. you could put the reserves towards making those people whole, right? Because essentially they got scammed by the government. <laughs> um, 
And so I think that would be a good use of the reserves is kind of just uh, settling uh, some injustices that, that were uh, committed generationally. Um, but also just um, cutting the size of government such that you can have the government live off a small percentage of the reserves, right? Like, so hmm. if they just spend 0.001% of the reserves every year, you could just not have taxes for centuries, millennia. Uh, and so that, I think, would be the most prudent uh, way to manage the reserves. And you could just put that in law, right, of the government cannot spend more than this very small percentage of the reserves. And the only way they could add to the reserves would be by selling their chairs, you know, not getting haircuts, like, you know, they've just Holes got in a, their underwear, that sort of thing, you know, yeah, just don't even wear lights, underwear, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of tactics and strategies that Bitcoiners could teach them on how to just be an ADIQ plebe. And that way they can make their money last. You know, I think hearing you uh, talk in such an impassioned way about this too, it just makes me realize that we need, as, as much as the political system is fraught with problems, it is fraught with problems and with sociopaths and psychopaths and people of, uh, let's say, mm, lacking, that are severely lacking in the moral department. But it is because of the, our broken incentives that, our political system is the way that it is. And if we can start changing those incentives by printing our shitcoin dollar to buy as much Bitcoin as possible and changing that incentive structure, then it incentivizes, I think, better people to get into politics and more Bitcoiners, especially the, the even, you know, from ADIQ, uh, then jump up to the, the top part of the bell curve. We don't need any more of the middle of the bell curve in politics. I think we either need, you need to be on the low end or the high end. Otherwise, just stay out of politics and uh, and we'll be a lot better off, I think. But it's it's a hopeful vision that you paint, Pierre. I've got to yeah. say, it's very hopeful. I mean, the, the midwit managerial class has been a plague on this society for the, basically, I, I, you know, uh, one, I, and th this has been studied sociologically as kind of the rise of the managerial class. Um, and then, you know, the rise of the business school and the MBA and the consultant and hmm. the investment banker and all this, like a lot of that is fiat. It's got to go. And I think that that's what we're seeing is, you know, it's also what we saw with uh, the takeover of Twitter by Elon. He like fired thousands of people and people were like, whoa, the website's going to stop working. And it's like, no, there's like a dozen engineers who keep the website running like yeah. everybody else is pure, you know, cost. Now, maybe they'll, I'm exaggerating there a little bit, but that's broadly, I think, the zeitgeist. Uh, and I think that that needs to be the zeitgeist of the next administration is that, hey, look, like, we can't afford all this. We got to get rid of people. We got to um, really get us down to a skeleton crew of what's the minimum we need to basically secure the border, Right. I mean, that's basically the only function of government is to secure the border. Uh, if they can't accomplish that, then what's the point right, of having a government? And hopefully we, you know, or I should say, thankfully, there are at least uh, states uh, that are willing to step in and handle things for themselves. Because clearly, even with the insane levels of bureaucratic bloat in the federal government, which was somehow requires a third of your entire life's work just to keep the lights on. Uh, 
they still cannot manage to perform their most basic, basic functions, which is just truly shocking. So I think we do need to trim the fat and the best way to trim the fat is to trim the fiat. And the best way to trim the fiat is to buy Bitcoin with that printed fiat. And so I think that we've arrived at a, at a pretty reasonable, what most people would argue is a pretty reasonable conclusion here. And I hope that these, uh, that these points are taken seriously by, by those in power. If Elizabeth Warren, if you're listening to this, maybe you can be that agent of change. You know, we're, our arms are always open. We're always waiting, uh, for you to realize that you were wrong and for you to start fighting for the people that you purport to represent, because that's what they want too. the people are asking for it, but you know, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm thinking back of when <laughs> she was like, you know what? I agree with Jamie diamond. I was like, yeah, yeah you do. Oh. <laughs> like we know, we know everyone knows. It, yeah. It's, it's, it almost seems like so much of what she does almost seems like satire that you start to have to like do a double take and you're like, no, like she can't Is possibly this a parody account. Like she can't possibly be making a statement of the structure of the most interesting man in the world statements. Like I don't often agree. Like, you know, you're, you didn't just do that. Did you like you did? Okay, good, good. That's, that's incredible. Good for you. Good for you lady. But you know, Pierre, I want to be conscious of your scarce time and I appreciate you sharing it with me because your time is valuable. You are spending it basically defending Texas, defending, uh, our nation by mining Bitcoin. And I thank you for that. Uh, and I, I did get a chance to at BitBlock boom, uh, in 2022 tour your facility there. And man, it is fucking impressive. Pardon my French, but it is just really cool to see that at scale, uh, Wow, uh, the immer you guys were setting up or had just set up one of the immersion mining uh, facilities there, or one of the immersion buildings, and that was wild. There's just there's no fans, there's no nothing. There's just circuit boards sitting in this lubricant, and it it seems like this magic. And meanwhile, they are fighting for the hardest money that humanity has ever or will ever discovered in a free market, uh, in a pretty darn free state. Uh, that was also my first time being in Texas besides, uh, besides a couple of road trips through and then, uh, and then being in airports, but airports don't count. So it was nice. I, it was uh, thank you guys for the hospitality there. That was really cool. Yeah. Thanks for visiting. Uh, it's uh, it's a modern Marvel. <laughs> it is, it is. And the last thing I would ask you uh, is, is there anything you are reading right now that you would recommend Uh Bitcoin related or otherwise, uh, anything that has been, uh, sparking your curiosity on the printed page of late. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, what I've been reading lately is the, uh, lawsuit <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> reviewing that over and over and, and checking all the sources and things on like on that. So I would really recommend folks read that, uh, because our complaint, you know, I think it's the first time uh, Bitcoin mining and the grid have been litigated. And so our complaint has like facts about the grid and Bitcoin mining. Right. And so it's just exciting to, to see, to get to read that and to contribute to that. And, uh, it's, um, yeah, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, we had an amazing, uh, legal team. Uh, we had an amazing, uh, well, several trade associations, the Texas blockchain council and the digital chamber of commerce, so Lee Bratcher and Perry Ann Boring, 
they were tremendous leaders on this as well. Uh, and uh, they were really the, the tip of the spear in pushing back against this government overreach. So uh, Riot, I think, deserves credit as a private business putting its name on it, um, because that does, I think, you know, it f from one perspective, it's like, oh, well, you should never sue the government. You know, you shouldn't sue your regulator because that doesn't look good. It's like, unless you're right. Which, you know, in that case, you have an obligation to, you're, uh, you have a duty. Uh, and so um, Riot really stepped up here and huge credit to our head of public policy, Brian Morgenstern, and our CEO, Jason Less, who uh, were really unflinching of like, hey, this is not okay. We're uh, definitely uh, going to um, make sure that... Uh, we're adequately represented, right? Which is, that's that's basically all we're asking for is that uh, we're not in principle opposed to a survey. It just has to be done the right way. Uh, and so that's really, um, you know, to the credit of the company that, that we stood up for ourselves like that. And so, um, and, you know, to me, it was really humbling because to me, I, I saw it as like, we have to do this, not just for Riot or TBC's members or Digital Chamber of Commerce's members. We have to do it for Bitcoin, right? At the end of the day, it's like, uh, that's the that's what the guiding principle is here is that north star of Bitcoin. Like, what is this good for Bitcoin? Uh, if it is, then let's do it. Uh, and so I, I, that was uh, really great to see. And I love it. And you know, you it's not that you shouldn't sue your government. It's that you shouldn't have to sue your government. But sometimes um, they force your hand by breaking the law. And so, yeah, yeah. What are you gonna so. do? Looking well, forward to working with them legally. Hopefully they play by the rules that they themselves have set. <laughs> oh, we'll bring them back to court if they don't. I mean, that's, you know, zero doubt about that. Uh, we're ready to go. So uh, <laughs> I love it. they, they got to play ball. Yeah. Well, uh, anywhere you want to send people uh, that they should check out, you're uh, at Bitcoin Pierre on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, anywhere else you want to direct yeah. people? Uh, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, nakamotoinstitute.org. Uh, Michael Goldstein is doing a fantastic job. Um, and um, then, uh, yeah, that's that's it. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it was a, it was a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to, to doing it again. And, and hopefully you won't have to deal with too much more uh, uh, regulating the regulators in the meantime. So I, I hope you get a little breather from that. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap on this Bitcoin Talk episode of the Bitcoin Podcast. If you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, head to bitcoinpodcast.net or hit me up on social media. On Noster, head to primal.net slash walker. And on Twitter, search for at walkeramerica or at titcoinpodcast. You can also watch the video version of this show on X or on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash atwalkeramerica or Rumble by searching for atwalkeramerica. Bitcoin is scarce. There will only ever be 21 million. But Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So thank you for spending your scarce time to listen to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Until next time, stay free. <laughs>